oh my gosh, I'm supposed to leave my job and start this business. And I text my husband and I'm like, dude, I think I'm supposed to leave my job and do hope, hope full time. And his response was, oh my gosh, it's about time. Really? And I was like, what? And he's like, dude, I've been waiting for you to realize this. I'm like, What's up, standouts? It's Yolanda, and this is episode number six of How She Did It. I'm interviewing my friend Jess Puccinelli, who is the owner of Hote Hope, a socially conscious gifting studio based here in Los Angeles. Her company creates gift boxes using products that give back to a good cause or positively impact the world. Jess's energy and enthusiasm in this episode are infectious. Four things you will take away from this episode is what Jess did to get up to speed quickly when she started her product-based business, an industry she had no experience in before. Number two, a book we both think every woman should read. Number three, how her mother's guidance during her first job as a babysitter influenced how she approached future jobs. And then number four, how her athletic background helped her land her first two jobs after college. We talk about this and a lot more. You are going to love this episode. And now let's start the show. I am running a business called Hote Hope. It is a socially conscious gifting studio based out of near Los Angeles. And what I do is I create gift boxes. I make gift boxes using products that give back to a good cause or positively impact the world. And our whole mission is just to make it easy for people to give good. You took something from idea, very intentional about what you wanted your purpose and mission to be. And it's just been really amazing to see the care and the quality of your product. Because I don't think that there are a lot of like luxury products that are created by people of color. So I really love that. I never even thought of it that way, but you're right. You're Mm -hmm. totally right. I'm proud to be in this space. Yeah. I've learned by watching what you do that you are a really good rapper of faith because I suck at that. So I'm like, oh, I wish she could teach me how to like make pretty boxes because I'll just throw the stuff in a bag (laughs) and be done with it. I'm I'm really fascinated by the idea of things being well-designed. And I I have a total confession. When I first started, I was the person who threw things in a bag. And it's actually my husband who is so particular about gift wrapping things. And he was the, the... honestly, the person gift wrapping in the beginning. And so he would always say, make sure they know that I actually wrap the gift. And because that's not a total strength of mine, we've moved to wooden boxes and they're beautiful. They have these like slide top boxes and they're gorgeous. But I mean, aside from being aesthetically pleasing, a lot of it was just, you know, I'm not an an amazing gift wrapper and I can't keep asking him to wrap hundreds and hundreds of gifts every day. And then you figured out a way to make it work. Totally. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the things you learn as an entrepreneur. You begin, you begin to really embrace your strengths and figure out this works for me. This doesn't work for me. And, you know, I mean, even in in that, as an example, I can wrap a gift. I can do it well, but it's going to take me twice as long as the average person. So is there some sort of shortcut I can put in there or hack? that I can do where we achieve the same result or maybe even a better result in this case. 
but I don't have to continue to try to operate outside of my strength. Okay, so we're going to backtrack a little bit. Where did you grow up? I'm a military brat. So this is one of the hardest questions uh-huh. in the world for me. I was born just outside of D.C. and actually in Maryland and moved from there at least every two years up until until I graduated from high school. Oh, wow. So I went to three different high schools in three different states. Whoa. Mm-hmm. What were, where were those states? Sure. Were they similar? They No, not at all. And actually, I always enjoy talking about this because I think it's a huge part of, of why I am the way I am. So mm-hmm. I just... It was very formative for me. So a lot in Northern Virginia, we almost always bounced back to there. But um, Kansas, Panama, small town Texas, military. And uh, so that was my freshman year of high school. And then we bounced from there to Northern Virginia, which was very, very, very diverse. And that I went to school with kids from Sudan, Ethiopia. uh, Let's see. I mean, you name it. Anywhere around the world. Korean, Japanese, everybody under the sun. Plus, you know. Jewish, your typical, you know, Americans, everybody. And I did that for one year and then moved to the suburbs of Atlanta, which is just an entirely different breed of mm. minority in general. It's it's actually, it was so interesting to be in a place where I just saw, in particular, Black people thriving. Mm-hmm. I mean, running the city and really thriving in, in a way that I don't think you see in a lot of other places in the U.S. Yeah. It's special. I mean, you've lived yeah, in Atlanta. I, yeah. So it's just different. Mm-hmm. And so I did my last two years of high school in Atlanta. Were you an only child or did you have siblings? Oh, I have a younger sister. Okay. So I'm the oldest of two. Okay. We're about three and a half years apart. Mm-hmm. So we never went to high school together. And it was interesting because she did, I want to say all of her middle school and high school with the same people. And mm-hmm. I didn't, I was always a new kid. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've been the new kid more times than I could count. Her experience is very different than mine. She very much had her own even, I, I guess, identity. Yeah. So how did you navigate changing schools and cities at that age? And how do you think that that shaped your personality? Oh my gosh. It's such a huge part, part of my personality, both good and bad. I am certainly adaptable and can adapt very quickly to change, even when it's uncomfortable and probably a little bit too adaptable. So on the flip side, mm-hmm. somebody who can my sister always says, she's like, you're so diplomatic and you're, or you're so apathetic at times. Or, you know, I can just kind of see both sides, all sides. You, when you meet that many different types of people, you begin to understand perspective in a really unique way and appreciate perspectives that are not like yours. But at the same time, I'm also, I tend to, I tend to actually test as a mediator and a peacemaker, uh, which is interesting. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm always... The person, whether it was while I was playing sports in college, whether I was a team captain, anything like that, always the person sort of communicating on behalf of different people, which what's interesting is that's what I do in my business. I'm a Mm -hmm. mediator. I'm the middle person between companies um, that are doing good and working with people and these women in marginalized countries. I, I bring their product to people who otherwise would never find them and help them to understand and wrap their head around how they can help, uh, in that way. Anyways, I digress, but mm, okay. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. It does. I mean, I don't know if it was in retrospect that you realized that was why you were so adaptable or cause you said something about like your sister says that you were like too adaptable to a fault. Like, so right. do you see it? As- oh, 100%. I can put anything, anything into perspective. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I also, I think I have this understanding that I used to always tell my mom, it'll all work out. So I don't have, there's nothing is ever really the end of the world. 
which sometimes you need to feel like things are the end of the world, right? Yeah. In order to and kind of get that like fire lit under you. But uh, I just, I can always, and it's not even rationalizing. It's just, I can always have perspective around something and it's how I cope. Okay. We were friends for two years. That was great. I love knowing you. And then I can completely move on and not really even probably grieve, you know, that loss because you're just so accustomed to having to be resilient and pick up and keep moving and adapt. So whereas that is a massive strength in many areas, especially as an entrepreneur, it can also be a little bit of a downfall. I had to learn when I moved to LA, Los Angeles is the longest I've lived anywhere. I've lived here for eight years. I had to learn how to maintain friendships and people often feel closer to me than I feel to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning how to receive that, learning how to cultivate relationships, continue to put the work in when for so long I knew they were finite. The more, the more I dive into it, the more I appreciate the people who called me out and, but, and the people who have given me grace. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, what's interesting is having moved a lot, I'm very independent. So I'm not, a, I don't really subscribe to clicks or even a group mentality. And that's been interesting, especially now when we're in a time politically or socially where you're always asked to almost pick a side mm-hmm. and going back to being a peacemaker or a mediator. That is so not me. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. And going into a school where going is going to three different high schools and seeing, you know, you have labels, right? Mm-hmm. Put on everybody, the jocks, the artists, the debate team, blah, blah, blah. And having my hand in probably four out of five of them yeah. and refusing to be labeled. It's yeah. just, it's so interesting. It all kind of comes, comes uh-huh. full circle to moving a ton. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Like what was something memorable that you remember from high school? I probably would have to speak to my last two years in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I was very involved then. I played sports nonstop. I was a basketball player, played competitively all throughout high school. And then in the off season ran track and when I wasn't doing that, you know, my dad had me in golf and all, you, you name it. And then I was on mock trial. I did the debate team. I remember just being busy. When I think about high school, I think about wanting it to be over. <laughs> <laughs> did you find, I remember this when I was in high school, that we had a girl who came our junior year. I just remember her and some other people that came in in high school that hadn't been there all the time like Mm -hmm. that the students there was like this like who are you and why are you taking over especially if you were good at something right it's like you're taking the place of someone else that's just been here did you find that in your situation Atlanta was hard Mm -hmm. Atlanta was really hard playing sports usually is kind of my saving grace Mm -hmm. or was my saving grace because you come in and you have a team and they're like great you're good we want to win awesome as long as you don't you know step on anybody's toes And I probably have more of that scenario in college than I did Mm -hmm. in high school. But you know what I actually ran into the most? It was more socioeconomic. Okay. So that was really interesting. So when we, this is actually an interesting story. When we moved to Atlanta, my dad transferred, transferred jobs and we lived in a hotel while my parents looked for a house. Mm -hmm. And so for the longest, we just lived in a hotel. But for, I think, I want to say the first three months. And right when I got to school, all the black kids kind of just took me under their wing. I met a few nerdy white kids on the bus who I loved. (laughs) I really did. But the black kids really took me under their wings. And and they all set one lunch table. I mean, literally, 
gosh, I think back on it. We were, I mean, <laughs> like we were those people. Like we were, I mean, we were loud. We put all our money together. We would literally order like chicken wings for lunch. Like Shut I up. swear <laughs> now that I'm thinking back on it. And that was like, that was not, that wasn't my norm, but this was the group that took me in. You know, come to the football game with us. Come do this with us. Great. I'm in. Fine. Uh, Atlanta's interesting because, especially in the suburbs, everybody knows, you know, you know where somebody lives by neighborhood, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. literally, and sometimes that neighborhood is like your gated community. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, oh, you don't ask like what side of town you live on. You ask what neighborhood do you mm-hmm. live in? My parents bought a house and I was so stoked because everybody knew that like we've been living in a hotel or whatever, you know. And I remember this girl asked me. She said, oh, cool. What neighborhood are you in? And I told her. And she was like, huh, well, aren't you just a little rich girl? And I was like, what? And I had no idea. Mm -hmm. When I tell you, zero idea. And I was like, what? She did not speak to me ever again. Mm -hmm. It was one of those things where she was just completely done with me. And from there, I just remember feeling like, okay, I just need to survive and I'm never going to tell anybody where I live again, (laughs) ever. I'm never going to invite anybody over because obviously this is something that's really polarizing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a weird thing. It wasn't what I expected. I'm like, why does that matter? But looking back on it, we had a lot of kids who um, were bussed in from a different side of town. And there were definitely like affluent black or kids with affluent parents. Mm -hmm. None of us were affluent. We're splitting our money. We were splitting (laughs) our money for chicken wings. Okay. But you know, uh, there was, there was definitely a spectrum, but for some reason I think coming in and just, yeah, rubbed it, rubbed it the wrong way. And really she kind of ended up dividing me from, I think a lot of people I would have gotten along with really well. I've been really close with, but it was interesting that that said something to her about me Actually, I know that's always been something that's really frustrated me is that regardless of somebody's circumstances or anything, and you know, you mm-hmm. and I talked about this a little bit before we started, character is everything. Mm-hmm. So would you let somebody go just because they aren't like you in a certain area? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a big question. Did you work while you were in high school or were you just super involved in, uh-oh, I see this look. You, let me tell you, I have been hustling <laughs> since I turned 12. So my mom is like, you got to work. Nobody's sitting around. Nobody's doing nothing. So I turned when I turned 12, I was eligible to take a Red Cross babysitting certification. I mean, we're talking CPR, the whole nine. My mom's like, you're 12. You got to learn. You're running this like a business, which is so fascinating to think about now yeah. mm-hmm. because I did not. I never thought of myself as entrepreneurial. And now looking back, I'm like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? You were groomed for this. Yeah. So I remember taking my Red Cross class getting certified, passing all the tests, everything, which is honestly, it's, it's awesome. It legitimized, legitimized mm-hmm. me as a babysitter in this yeah. small Texas town. And I came home and my mom, my mom sat me down and she's like, all right, time to set your rates. So what do you, what do you think your time is worth? And I was $2 an hour, $2 per child. So you'd have these military moms who were so just exhausted that they would leave me a 12 year old with four kids. But let me tell you, that was $8 an hour, okay? $8 an hour, you're gone for four hours. I just made $24, which is nothing to them. But But for me, I'm like, I can do anything. So I started with that sort of mentality. I would host, I hope my mom gets to hear this because I would, she, she was just such a driving force behind it. Okay, great. It's the holidays now. How are you going to thank your clients? And so, yes, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, how are you going to thank your clients? So this is what we would do. I would take a flyer. And I'd, you know, ride my bike or whatever, drop it off in everybody's mailboxes, or my mom would drive me if they were too far away. And we would host these like 
uh, I would host a, a shopping day for the parents. So the moms could go shop and we would bring all the kids to the house, to my parents' house. And I got my best friend. I remember my best friend at the time, Dominique, she came over and we tag teamed with all these kids. We had a sugar cooking station, sugar cookie making station, pizza, but the moms got away for like, they had four hours to shop. And let me tell you something. People would just, I mean, I got return client after return client. Mm -hmm. So then moving to Atlanta, we are in this massive, the kind of massive neighborhood, tons of families, and there's a directory. And so my mom is like, look, you guys got to go to this babysitting directory. Our last name was Ayers. So my sister oh, and I- at the top. Numero uno. <laughs> Sorry. We were, I was number one. Wait. Yeah, I was number one. And then my sister was number two. And so people, they're not going through all the names. Mm -hmm. They start calling us. Well, you know, we did it well. I did at least. I took babysitting very seriously, up my rates because I knew, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Look, supply and demand, cost of living is different here. The whole nine, these people are willing to pay. <laughs> Remember, like, I, I'm like, okay, let's go. So up my rates. I'm older now. I can drive your kids, but I can do all these things and just started making money. I mean, I would, people would leave me, you know, I'd do weekend stints with their kids and in, because I was always playing basketball, mm -hmm. always, it was the perfect job. Yeah. Uh, because you didn't have to worry about having your boss no. set your schedule. You could do it whenever you wanted exactly. to. No hours, nothing. And word of mouth just started to spread. And so before you knew it, it, there was, it was literally, it was a thing. If you were going to get a babysitter, you need to call the heirs girls. And you, if you can't get dressed, get Lynn's because they're the ones you want. And we, I mean, my mom's like, these people's houses better be clean when they get home. Kids need to be in bed. Oh. We would play with the kids. We wouldn't mm -hmm. just veg out. And so there was just this reputation. And I, we were just, I mean, I'm telling you, I, make money. I remember one family, she, during, whenever they'd have their holiday parties, I would take the kids. She'd be like, just take them down to the club. I mean, what? Yes, of course. I'll take them to the club. Riding around on golf carts with people's kids. So we just made it work for us. It was really, it was really, really cool. Uh, and for me in particular, really cool up until, um, I got my first like hourly job. The winter during my freshman year, I worked as a hostess at a Logan's Roadhouse. And I just remember walking in and that guy, the, the guy interviewed me. I had no experience. And he's like, all I know is I need that smile at my front door. Mm -hmm. I was like, cheese, cheese, <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. You graduated high school. Mm -hmm. What were your career thoughts at that point? What did you think you wanted to do? Oh, I was going to be the first black lead news anchor on the Today Show. I was going to uproot Katie Couric <laughs> by Bye. I was going for it. I'm like, I chose my school for journalism. I did everything. Everything was about journalism. I wanted to be a news anchor. What got you interested in journalism? In the sixth grade, I went to the museum, which is a, this museum all about the news huh. in, in DC. Huh. And I loved it. And from then on, I'm telling you, I watched either the Today Show every morning or once I got older and I was getting up earlier, I watched Robin Mead on Headline News every morning. And can I tell you something crazy? We Have were, you met her? Well, no, but we were featured by CNN oh, this yeah, year. Oh, yeah, I remember saying that. Right? And Robin Mead teed it up. And I, I could cry thinking about it right now yeah. because little Jessica is like, was seriously, I mean, every morning I watched how she did it, what she did, how she reported, all of it. And I was, I was convinced that that was what I was going to do. Did you do anything like when you were in high school to test that? I didn't, which is so strange. I was always a little... A little bit timid and I think part of that is coming into a new school every mm -hmm. time so going to three different high schools is it's difficult to build a rapport mm -hmm. in that area with the AV kids you know yeah 
Okay. So you said that you chose your college mm-hmm. for that. Right. And you went to the University of Tennessee. I went Knoxville. to the University of Tennessee. And this is the real Tennessee. UT volunteers. Okay. Go Vols. So it was interesting. My my other choice was Feldman. Really? It was. But they only have an English program. Yeah. And so as a result, it was, I knew, and also it was a little bit too close to home. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> but uh, I chose I chose Tennessee. They had an incredible journalism program. And I was wiping my hands of sports. And I was going to focus completely on journalism and just get there, get to where I needed to go. Was there someone that you respected had gone to University of Tennessee or did you just do a lot of research and figure out where the best schools? Yeah, I'm a researcher. So I did, I <laughs> what schools were far, far enough away from my parents where they wouldn't just pop in, but close enough where I could get home. That's why I chose Melbourne. Right. Because <laughs> I could get there easily, but it was a five hour drive. Right. Exactly. So it's like mom and dad are just going to pop in. And then I knew, you know, after realizing Spelman didn't have the the journalism program mm-hmm. that I needed, I knew that I wanted to go to a bigger state school that just kind of represented a little bit more of, you know, what the world looked like. Mm-hmm. And so I thought for a minute, I visited Alabama, really hated it. I When, when the tour guide said, you know, we just got a Walmart. I was like, this is not going to work. <laughs> And got up to Tennessee. They they just went out of their way for me. I toured the and I, I mean I went I I signed or whatever. I decided to go. I committed to Tennessee late, and so okay. I I toured the journalism department on a random like Tuesday or something. And everybody made it work, and I just loved it. So and so did you major in journalism or what did you major? I did. In? I majored in journalism and electronic media. Anything in the I mean AV kid for okay. sure, but anything in radio TV. Um, print anything in that realm. I, that's what I studied. And then a minor in poli-sci. Why political science? Well, because after my first class, my communications one-on-one, I realized that that every news station is owned by about five people or five different people and that they all had their own agendas. And I did not know that. And that really devastated me. And I thought, well, you know, if I'm going to if I'm going to lie for a living, I, I'm going to make some money doing it. So I think I really want to pursue law. And I just happened to have a, an interest in political science. And so before I knew it, I had amassed enough credits to, you know, have a minor. Mm, okay. So what was your favorite class? Mm, that's a good question. It's probably a tie between African-American history was fantastic. We had a really, this really militant teacher, but he was white. So that was like the kind of the best part. He was like angrier than everybody. But that and then uh, some photography classes I took okay. were really, really cool. Really good. Did those classes influence anything about where you saw yourself going next after college? No, I, 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 after college, because, okay, so I graduated when the market crashed. Mm -hmm. So after college was almost just taking any skills that I'd amassed and trying to throw them at, at some sort of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And what it ended up looking like was marketing and PR. And that's how I ended up going down that route because I knew I wasn't going to do journalism took one look at the LSAT and thought about law school and was like, guess what? I actually really don't like school. So I don't want to continue down that road. So what was it that happened in those years that you were in college that helped you to determine that you didn't want to do journalism and law wasn't sure. for you? So in college, I tested everything. So I interned at Fox 5 in Atlanta, new mm-hmm. station. Okay. Part-time at Coca-Cola in a call center as uh-huh. well. 
Okay. Yep. I interned with our radio station. I interned with our magazine. I and I did. I tested it all to ensure that that wasn't what I wanted to do, or that maybe there wasn't even an avenue of this that I wanted to pursue. And nothing kind of just got me got me going. And then with law, really, it was law school that deterred me. I was like, you know, I, I don't really want to do that. So yeah. it's interesting. One of the people that I interviewed for this podcast Mm -hmm. she went to law school Mm -hmm. she went to duke law school and she advises people don't go to law school (laughs) i have a friend who's who said are we still doing law school she goes is this a thing are we still doing this but then i look at my sister my sister's in law school right now and she was the last one we expected to go to law Mm -hmm. school and she said why did i do this Yeah. yeah okay so you decided to go into marketing and PR. Mm-hmm. What? How did you get to that conclusion if that's what you wanted to pursue next? I was really looking at the skills that I developed in college. And so you come out with a journalism major, you can write, mm-hmm. you can, I looked at some sales positions, but you know, you know how to talk to people, you know how to write, you can kind of come up with ideas. I took a great advertising class that I just had kind of had a knack for in school. So I found I found that through those classes, I was really, really good at just coming up with creative marketing strategies or ads or anything like that. And so I just took my this portfolio that I'd built and tried to figure out how I could leverage it in a market where the first thing being cut was PR and marketing. Yeah. And then I did. Okay, so you your first role out of college was at the Atlanta Peach Magazine? It was, well... Secret. My first role, because I when I moved home, when I got home from college, uh, my mom... Oh, yeah. Why did you decide to come back to Atlanta and not stay in Knoxville? I just didn't have a job. I, I looked... I had interviewed for a sales position in Nashville to work with a TV station in sales and ended up not getting that. And so the next thing was, you got to go home. So I came home and the day after I got home, my mom woke me up. She hit the intercom was like, hey, time to get up. Let's plan your life. And I was like, what? Came downstairs... And I should say this for context, my mom's a career coach. Okay. So <laughs> this is what she does. Okay. So that's why she had you go hard on the babysitting. Let me tell you, door to door. She's like, let's go. You know, let's, we're making a career out of this. And so uh, we sat down and we made plan A, B, and C. But while I was pursuing plan A, I had to have a job. And so I went back to obviously, you know, picked up those old babysitting clients. I think I picked up like a part-time nanny gig. And then I started working at a Curves. So I was working at a Curves. And on my lunch break, I would have to go... The only place at the time, this was 2008, that had Wi-Fi, free Wi-Fi, was Dunkin' Donuts. And so I would pack my lunch because, you know, even imagine not having Wi-Fi. Yeah. Right. Dunkin' Donuts. They had just opened a brand new one mm-hmm. around the street from Curves. So I would leave Curves because I had this break in between. And I would go and just apply for job after job after job. And I said, this is interesting, when I first got home, it was my first time really seeing Atlanta Peach Magazine. And... I said to my mom, I want to work for them. And before you knew it, you know, every day I had a certain amount of calls I had to make. I had calls I had to make, a certain amount of resumes I had to submit, obviously like cover letters to write, follow-up I had to do, and informational interviews. Cheryl Ayers was not messing she around. She is no joke. I think she probably knew that this was going to be a process. And so saw that Atlanta Peach was hiring for a sales and marketing intern and applied. And I remember I went in and my mom, I was in a suit and my mom suggested that I wear a peach button down underneath. Thanks, mom. <laughs> underneath because Atlanta peach, yeah. right? Thanks. And she hadn't, she didn't stare me wrong yet. And I went in and I interviewed and I remember all the other girls interviewing were so cool. They, I mean, they were wearing at the time, like 
Tory Burch. They had like mm-hmm. the cutest things on. They, and I was literally corporate America going into this job. But I got the job because I was a rower in college. And so I went to school on a rowing scholarship, ah. which is for another day. And the girl interviewing me said later on, later on told me, she said, I remember the rowers at my school. They were the ones who were up at 4 a.m. And they were... Um, practicing before they were going to school and they're practicing after. And I know how much work it takes to do that and not only do it, but excel in it. And I want that kind of person on my team. I, and when I tell you, I had no idea about high, high fashion to me at that time was Abercrombie and Fitch, like just to put things in perspective. So I had no idea and was just put thrust into this world based solely off of skills that I had amassed and work ethic. Mm -hmm. Our first event was like, with Bally. And I was like, what is Bally? And, you know, we did everything over at Lennox. Like, you know, every, so do those still exist? Oh my gosh. Well, Atlanta Peach doesn't. So this is how I ended up in my next job. The magazine folded. You should have heard my mom and dad laughing at me. They were like, who gets laid off as an intern? (laughs) But let me tell you, the best part was, is that, so it was a paid externship, right? And it was a paid externship. And after it was over, they let, they gave us all of this like vouve, high end champagne, uh, you know, Bombay Sapphire, all this, like everything. And then all this makeup, they just like, that's what they gave us on the way out. So I really wasn't that upset. I was like, this is awesome. If anybody comes over, it's mimosas, you know? So <laughs> yeah. And then I ended up, um, through kind of my sports background, mm-hmm. networking my way into a position with the WBCA after that. So how did that happen? That happened because when I worked in media relations at Tennessee, Mm -hmm. again, so many internships, I interned with our media relations team and the head of media relations, Debbie Jennings, just adored me. And she advocated for me in so many areas and still does to this day. And so I, she was somebody I kept in touch with after college she said, you know, you really should think about like, they have these, this great internship program with the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, which is the WBCA. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it. She wrote me a letter of recommendation. I interviewed, you know, my mom's a career coach. I interview well, <laughs> you know, all of these things and, and ended up as their sales and marketing intern. And we, there, we put on the women's final four, women's basketball final, final four for all of college. The, the high school American game, everything, you name it. And then the, a huge conference for women's basketball. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you said that Debbie was a really good advocate for you. Right. What did that look like? Debbie figured things like this out. This is kind of interesting. So as a rower, we got to our, to the top 10 in the nation. So our team was top 10, which is huge. Yeah. You know, you're racing Ivy league schools with the history of this. We were top 10. She noticed that by the time you got to the top 10 teams, I was the only black person there. Oh. Debbie would say, this is just Jess Ayers at the time. This is Jess Ayers. She's the fastest black woman, black rower in the nation. Did you know that? That's not a real, that's not <laughs> technically a real stat, but it was. Mm-hmm. And so she was constantly building, building me up. She's like, she's like, you are really good at this. Or you, we want to put you in front of people. She would, so she would tell, you know, we'd be at, I don't know, some game or something like that. And she, it make a point to introduce people to me and then on top of it, tell them, you know, she's one, she's one of our star media relations interns. She's going places, just all of this mm-hmm. affirmation okay. constantly. And then, um, I'm telling you to this day, if I get, if I do anything on Facebook, Debbie Jennings is like, Posting. that's my girl. Like, yeah, I mean, and she's, and she's unbelievable. But I think those types of people who are just for you make all the difference in the world because I don't necessarily think I would have that kind of confidence 
I actually, I know I wouldn't have that confidence mm-hmm. myself. So it was awesome to have someone advocating for me in yeah. that way. So she sounds awesome. Your mom sounds awesome. Why do, you, why do you think that you were so open to just taking all of her advice about what you should be doing? So my parents, my especially my dad, they, one, they raised us to just be incredibly respectful. Part mm-hmm. of that is being from the South. The other part is my dad was in the military. So, okay. you know, you grow up with, I was the kid who got made fun of because I said, yes, ma'am, to the lunch lady. You're just, mm-hmm. you're just extra respectful. And so when people are willing to speak into your life, my parents were always like, listen. And they, they would tell me like, no matter what that person looks like, if they're coming behind you, if they're, if they are advocating for you, let them like listen and, and accept it and receive it. Like that's what you're going to need throughout life. And so my dad was really good about telling me stories of people who didn't look like him, sometimes who did look like him, who advocated for him really early on. Um, he, he often tells a story where he was in auto diesel school, like mechanic school. Mm-hmm. And he, in, in his spare time, he was a courtesy driver for, uh, you know, some dealership. And this Indian guy got into the car and one day and was talking to him and he said, why are you in, why are you learning to be a mechanic? You're too smart for this. You need to go to college. You need to go to college. The whole ride. Nope. You need to go to college. And then when he picked him up again, brought him an application for the University of Tennessee, which he didn't end up going to, mm-hmm. but you know, just people who saw your potential and were almost relentless. So my parent, my parents were very much like stay open and uh, beyond just being respectful, just be open to people who are relentless for you. Okay, so you are working at the WBCA. Mm-hmm. What does a communications intern do? I mean, you're writing every press release. You are communicating with at the time every coach who's winning an award. So because we were really dealing with just all of the awards across the board. We did all the polling for USA Today. So when, you know, teams get ranked, I did mm-hmm. all of that for Division one, Division 3 and Division 2. So what skills did you have to develop in order to be good at that job? I had to learn how to, how to write press releases. And so my copywriting skills went up exponentially. I've always been a, a good communicator, but learning how to respectfully communicate and professionally communicate with coaches, uh, a lot of like just data stuff and detail stuff that is not my forte when it came to the polling and then time management because we were on a really strict schedule. And so there were deadlines for everything. Was there a person or a situation that helped or hindered you with that job? I had one of the greatest bosses ever and her, her name is Summer, Summer McKesson. And she is somebody who, and these are the people who I've always worked really well with. I don't do well with micromanaging. And I think she saw that really quickly. So she would give me these kind of really broad parameters to work within and then just allow me to work there. She was fantastic. She trusted me to do my job. She uh, critiqued kindly and gave me room to sort of just make the job my own. Was this like a set intern? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. There's no opportunity after. So their internship program is prestigious. And so you come in and you, you don't stay because the people above you are there. They, they're just constantly bringing in new interns. And most people are looking to continue in sports. Mm -hmm. Uh, at the time, I didn't know what I was going to do. So the day after my internship ended, I flew to San Diego to hang out with my friend for a week and ended up getting a job in PR or an internship in PR. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. So I have an older cousin who lives up here who I was not close with at the time. And my mom, of course, is like, you need to make sure you go see her. And I'm like, okay, fine. So drove up from San Diego to LA and... Um, met up with her and was just talking, you know, running my mouth, telling her what I've been up to, get a call the next day. And she's like, why didn't you tell me you've been working in PR? Why haven't you called me? You know, I own an agency. And I was like, dude, what am I going to do? Call you and ask you for a job across the country? No. 
She said, well, I need an intern. Can you stay for two weeks? I said, sure. That two weeks turned into a month, turned into three months. And then she's like, I cannot let you leave. And so she ended up hiring me, hiring me on. And I worked there for two years and we worked with luxury hotels. Um, we worked with chefs. We worked with, you know, kind of everybody under the sun, uh, just lifestyle PR. And I mean, I learned how to run photo shoots at that point. I learned how to pitch. I learned, obviously I, I was honing my press release, like my, my press release skills. Uh, I mean, and then at that time, social media was on the rise. And so I set up all of our clients in social. At the time, I remember sitting one of my first meetings and it was with all of these oceanfront properties, like down to Laguna Beach and everybody in the room was probably at least 20 years older than I was. And I'm in here and I'm this like intern or whatever. And they're like, whoa, with Facebook, how, if somebody comments and they say something bad about our hotel, how do we manage that? Which now sounds absurd because it's almost, it's a part of the whole process. And I was just like, what? That's what you're worried about? I'm like, you have an opportunity to reach people, blah, blah, blah. And I'm running my mouth and they're all like, who is this? And I, and I didn't even have the, I didn't even have the restraint to not say anything because I, this was just such a part of our normal life. I'm like, if you can tap into people during their downtime, you can make some money. You are working at the communications group mm -hmm. as, and you went from intern to an account executive. How did that happen? Intern. So did the internship and so it, it was really cool because we we're a small agency, but with some really neat clients and we were given again, a lot of autonomy. So room to just grow and, and just thrown into the fire. And so by the, by like after, I think it actually, I think it was after a month, it was like, you got to stay. Like I need you to stay. Great. I'm in. I, you know, I met my husband at this point. Crazy. Oh, wow. One month after. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm, gonna, like, I'm not, I don't, okay, don't even want to leave. I'm like, this is fun. And so, and plus, I mean, you know, LA, come on. So then, Had, was LA in your radar Okay, or in, were you planning on just staying in Atlanta? I was not planning on moving to LA at all. I actually had applied for a job with the Los Angeles Sparks and Debbie Jennings. Hey, Deb. Like Debbie Jennings had made a call for me. And, but she was, but they really wanted somebody in LA. And it was, and she, I remember her talking to me and saying, you know, LA's really expensive and this job isn't paying much. So just be aware of that. And I never even thought about Los Angeles as an opportunity. And then it fell into my lap. It happened. We, uh, after my internship was up, came on as an assistant AE or account executive and did that for a little bit. And then about, I'd say, I want to say about a year after that became a full on account executive. And that meant, you know, going to client meetings on my own, having a full, full set of clients that I was working with, coming up with concepts for them, doing a lot of pitching, a lot of events, things like that. What skills did you have to develop in order to be good at that job? I liked the account executive position because it allowed me to almost develop some leadership skills. I know that sounds weird, but you really have to learn how to manage your clients and client management. And sometimes what they think will make them happy isn't isn't what will make them happy. You also learn what battles to choose. It was kind of like running your own little business looking back at it because these are my clients and whatever I came up with them, it was my job to execute. But I became, for the time, really well-versed in social media and put a, put a campaign together before you had influencers. This is really strange to look back at, but this was before influencer marketing was a thing. But I noticed that there were all of these mom blogs that they were bringing their kids to this one hotel because they had a slide and this whole thing. I said, I pitched the idea to my client and to my boss. And I, I said, 
hey, I think we should do a mommy blogger spa day. I think we should just bring them in to the spa, which was epic, by the way. We should bring them into the spa and we should do all of these mini treatments for them, but just like treat them so well and, and really expose them to our property. So we did two different events, a total of 60 different bloggers who at the time were not accustomed to getting things for free. They were truly and genuinely blogging because they were sharing information. Mm -hmm. So they had an experience. I had to convince my client, had to convince my boss. We did it. We had millions of impressions as a result of it, which was huge for us. I mean, she literally made me print a book up of all of the clippings and everything. And so it's a book that's like an inch and a half thick really? of just press. So I did that and I realized, okay, I, I have a kind of have a, a knack for this sort of thing for create for experiential marketing mm -hmm. and realized that I really wanted to go in-house with something like this and, and kind of have, again, I'm always looking for more autonomy, <laughs> but just more, con more freedom to really, you know, do the things that I, that I want to do with, you know, whatever. But since you knew that's what you wanted to do right. so that you started looking for yeah. something else to do something where I could go in-house so I knew I wanted to be in-house with hospitality because it was diverse enough where you're marketing a restaurant you're marketing rooms you're marketing events location you could there's a lot of partnership mm -hmm. involved and so I began looking and ended up landing a job with Joie de Vivre Hotels Hotel Angelino specifically what was that first thing you said oh yeah <laughs> Joie de Vivre Hotels okay which is a boutique hotel chain that was started in San Francisco and their whole deal is grassroots marketing so coming into a position that was its only position in the entire company really neat my GM had the foresight to say if our hotel is going to do well, we're going to need somebody who specializes in marketing. This can't fall on the director of sales or the sales team. Mm -hmm. So he brought me in as a coordinator. And how did you find out about the opportunity? Just, you know, indeed. One of my clients, her husband worked for the company already. So they were both in hospitality. And I just literally networked my way and asked him, you know, could you just put in a good word for me? Yeah. That was it. And he was willing to do that. And so I want to say, you know, I had about a two week turnaround mm -hmm. and started with Hotel Angelino as a marketing coordinator. As a marketing manager, mm -hmm. what did you do at Hotel Angelino? Because I can't say the other name. No, Joana Vivre Hotels. So it was cool because I got to work with a lot of the different hotels in the area because they didn't have a marketing person. So I would come in and essentially consult for some of the other hotels, okay. which is really neat looking back on it. But I, you know, I didn't know. With the hotel, I branded and obviously kept the integrity of the brand for our hotel and restaurant and would help other hotels do the same okay. thing and worked exclusively with the graphic, you know, graphics department to create every single piece of marketing and or collateral in the hotel. And I'm talking down to like, you know, when you go into a hotel and you see the sign that's like, if you want to uh, get new towels, leave them here. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I worked with a designer to design. So those. they wanted to redo everything, everything. And it needed to be, up, updated and upgraded. And so I was there for uh, three, I think like three and a half years. Mm -hmm. And that was, I built out this entire marketing just entity. So like I said, everything from the collateral, sending out press releases, getting press in. We did not have a PR agency. So I was doing that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, working with my sales team to come up with promotions for them so that they could, you know, then market it. Events, collaborations. I worked with, I worked and created partnerships with everybody from, the Getty Museum to nonprofits worked with Yelp for our restaurant to host dinners there, dinner events, media events, even I mean there was so much. Ran all of our photo shoots. I, looking back on it, it's just crazy. Redesigned the website. I had to redesign. We switched. We switched like our 
head corporate company at, at one point and I had to redesign our entire website in one month. And what was really neat about that job is, again, this kind of goes back to advocacy. Mm-hmm. My GM, who was a white male, mm-hmm. actually, I remember he didn't put me in the same room as the sales team my first, I think, year and a half there. He put me in his office. So his office was here and mine was next to him, next to our director of operations. I had this weird, I almost served as a gatekeeper, but I had this weird insight into everything that was going on in the hotel. I knew what his relationship was with anybody at any given time. I knew what we needed to accomplish. I sat outside of owner's meetings and he let me in on so much stuff really early on. Mm -hmm. And because I was a young honestly, probably just like a young black female, he advocated for me when I couldn't. And so I remember him pulling me into his office one time and saying specifically, listen, especially in food and beverage, because it's it's a male heavy, heavy industry where they have little tolerance for, you know, some cute high heeled, whatever girl mm-hmm. coming in and being like, we should do this and we should do that. And we need to change the menu and bubble or whatever. Uh, he, I remember him pulling me into his office and saying, listen, this is so politically incorrect, but I need you to be a in those meetings he's like he's like you gotta you can't be nice he's like you can't be nice he's like you gotta stand your ground he's like you got they will walk all over if you don't you gotta stand your ground he's like i've got your back but like you have to speak up you have to tell them what they need and so he gave me permission and even protection to be able to be like guys listen you know if we're if we're running this i need x y and z i need a liquor sponsor for i just to be able to like really run my own race and then uh, my director of sales changed to a guy named Dean Yamashita, who to this day is one of the greatest people I've ever met. Japanese had a very different way of doing business, right? Mm-hmm. So we'd sit down for meetings with people and he would tell me, we don't talk business for the first like hour of the meeting. He goes, this is about people. So we really understood building relationships. Mm-hmm. So I had my GM who constantly wouldn't make a decision for me. He would say, he would lean back and he'd say, well, you're the marketing at this point manager. You're the marketing manager. What would you do? And just built this confidence in me that was unreal. And then Dean was like, you're my marketing manager. This is what you do. He'd tell me what he needed me to become an expert in. I need you to become an expert in SEO. Great. I need you to become an expert in paid ads or you know Google AdWords. Mm-hmm. Great. Push and we have these one-on-ones. And the first hour of our one-on-one would be, how are you? Like, what's going on? Right? Can you imagine? Yeah. In- like, absolutely interested in who I was. So was that your your MO? Like, were you comfortable having personal relationships with people that you work? Absolutely. Okay. And I think given the, the dynamic of our department and even our entire, our entire team was just really close. Okay. And also, I was taught that. So Rick and Dean were like, listen, you have to build relationships with these departments. So the engineering department, they come in, they fix the rooms, they do this. He goes, they have to like you. Mm -hmm. If they like you, they'll do stuff for you. They'll go the extra mile. When you have a media person in there, they're going to make sure that room is fixed and tidy and da, da, da. Your front desk people, they're going to go out of their way for you. They're going to, they're going to latch onto your initiatives. And so he really taught me how to, both of them, how to leverage relationships Mm -hmm. to get things accomplished in a place where you really can have a lot of fragments or different factions Mm -hmm. of the hotel. So and this is going to be kind of sound like a weird word, but such a powerful position. They gave me a lot of power and a lot of authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I like that. So something you just said was managing and establishing relationships. Mm-hmm. What would be your advice on how you do that with business? Because I think establishing relationships on a personal level is mm-hmm. different from business. For sure. So what what does that look like? For me, I and I tend to 
kind of go about both personal and professional the same way. Okay. It starts with taking a genuine interest in whoever that person is and what it is they do, even if it doesn't, even if it's something that I have nothing, I know nothing about, or maybe that information I'll never use, but taking a genuine interest in who they are and what they're doing. And so I'll start there. From there, I'll move into how can I help you do that? And and I find that whenever you're willing to, again, genuinely help somebody or take genuine interest in somebody, then a really authentic relationship develops and people, you're able to kind of have this, you know, ebb and flow of give and take. Can you think of an example of where you did that with someone? Hmm. I can even think about, this is a kind of a small example, but one of the engineers, Ronald, I just asked him where he was from, you know, he's from Peru. And we started talking about that and what, like, what do you like to do? He's like, well, I really like working with wood. Okay, that's cool. And so it just started to get to know Ronald. And then anytime I needed something, Ronald was, I mean, first in line, anything. And it was like, Ronald, I have a guest coming in and this is happening and they're VIP. Can you just like make sure this is fixed? For you, of course I can. He, I don't know. I think he felt seen and, and honored. And I think when people feel seen and honored for just whoever they are with no agenda, right? Every Everything going back to like, I didn't need anything from Ronald at the time. I just took interest in him. And then he looked out for me from then on. I mean, yeah. Ronald painted my apartment after I after Shut I got married. Up. Ronald, like I'm telling you. <laughs> Ronald was like, I'm, I will paint it. I will hang things for I mean, he's just, you know, he's a friend now. So you were there until June. Mm-hmm. And this is getting closer around the time that we met at the event. Crazy. So why did you leave Hotel Angelino and what did you do next? Cool. I'm going to try to keep this brief. I, in November of 2013, I was looking for a gift for a friend. And I had a friend recommend this company called The Giving Keys. And they have a socially social good product where they have these necklaces with keys on them, made by people transitioning out of homelessness. So there's just, there's all of this good in it and it was really well designed. I was like, man. I wish there was a place where I could go and someone who curated all of these beautiful products that gave back to a good cause, but they put them in gift boxes. Like I didn't want a marketplace. I wanted gift boxes that I could send to my friend for their birthday or, you know, whatever it might be. And a girlfriend of mine asked me when I was going to start. Well, it probably exists. It didn't exist. And so I kind of began it just truly as this side project. And frankly, I was terrified to even do that much. I'd never started my own business. Hot Hope started off as Jess's side hustle, but it became a full-fledged business. If you are toying with the idea of starting a side hustle, check out the book Side Hustle by Chris Gillibo. The tagline for his book is, From Idea to Income in 27 Days. Link to the book can be found in the show notes for this episode at nts.today forward slash six. And simultaneously, I'd been in this job for three and a half years and truthfully was nailing it. Manager of the year, beginning to be recruited for bigger hospitality mm-hmm. positions, director of sales positions, etc. None of it felt right. I, I always describe it as I was in this sort of purgatory where I didn't know what was next, yeah. but I knew I wasn't supposed to stay. Mm-hmm. So I just was just writing it out until in, intuitively I knew something different was going on. Kept doing my business and just kind of beta testing it here and there, getting insights, starting to research companies, 
considering like setting up a website, you know, nothing crazy. And then I went and volunteered at this orphanage in Mexico. And when I came back, I was sitting in my cubicle, my little four by four fluorescent lights. And I'd also been, I think a little bit, a little bit frustrated with that. I just remember I was sitting there and I looked around and I knew, I, I knew at my core, I am supposed to start this business. Oh my gosh. I'm supposed to leave my job and start this business. And I text my husband and I'm like, dude, I think I'm supposed to leave my job and do hope, hope full time. And his response was, Oh my gosh, it's about time. I was like, what? He's like, dude, I've been waiting for you to realize this. I'm like, what? I said, so I said to him, all right, I'm going to give myself three to six months to just leave this job. And he's told me you have three months. If you give yourself six, you will never leave. Mm -hmm. So the next three months I worked nonstop. Remember this position, I was the only person who'd ever done it. So mm-hmm. I had tons of proti- proprietary information. Yeah, No one knew. It was nowhere. It was just all up here. Who to call for this, who to do for this. And because I had such an amazing team and I worked for such amazing people, I really, and even if I hadn't, I really believe in leaving something better than you found it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So I worked tirelessly. I would, I would get to work early. I remember my sales team was like, why are you asking us for things so far ahead in, in advance? But it's because I knew I was leaving and I wanted everybody to be set up for success. You know, I was in the office usually probably like by 7 a.m. And then I would do all my work, 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 the day-to-day work, stay late, get stuff done ahead, go home work on my business, take my lunch breaks. Like during my lunch breaks, I would go to, you know, uh, get my DBA and like, you know, get my seller's license and my wholesaler's license and my tax information for the business. And then, um, or any meetings and things that I needed to have. And then I did that for two months. And then in that last month, I put in a one month notice okay. instead of how did they take it? They were so excited for me. Really? They became my first client. They oh. threw me a huge going away party. I had, remember my sales team, they were like, you were always bigger than this place. <laughs> like you were never meant to be here. Like we knew you'd spread your wings. Yeah. But Dean was the kind of boss who would always preface things with when you leave here, when you're on to your next thing. Really? And it taught me, mm-hmm. right, that things weren't, that it's okay for things not to be finite or even yeah. for people to not be finite or your team. But I really honored my leaders and I set, the, I mean, I set them up for success. I interviewed the person who came in okay. after me. So I was that involved in the process and they were so gracious. I think my expectation was, you know, maybe that there would be some frustration, but there wasn't. There was only excitement. Okay. So you founded Hot Hope. Or is it hoped? Hoped. Hoped. Nice. Yeah. You're French. <laughs> Which I obviously suck at. <laughs> You're like my French, my French. Yeah. Mine's, I mean, I don't. So what does a typical day look like for you there? Oh my gosh. Thankfully, there's no typical day. Yeah. So, I mean, I have rhythms. And again, this goes back to being a person who needs loose parameters around everything mm-hmm. they do. But uh, so typically I'm up pretty early. I'm working out. I come home. And I read, I meditate, I pray, I do all of those things. Um, I eat, eat a pretty big breakfast. I have to shower and get dressed. So that's huge for me. I'm not the entrepreneur that can be in yoga pants all day. Mm-hmm. I won't get anything done. I have to feel feel like I'm going someplace. Yeah. And then uh, the way I have my day structured is I, I still do some freelance marketing work. So I'll try to get all of that done within a couple of hours mm-hmm. at the beginning of the day. And then I move into any sort of creative thing for my business first. Mm -hmm. So whether that's assembling a gift box or working on a design piece or writing something for a blog or anything like that, uh, you know, redesigning the website, anything like that photo shoots I do at the beginning of the day. And and then I always take a break for lunch. So I'm really adamant about 
taking an hour lunch, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably skip. Mm -hmm. I think it is the greatest luxury to be able to make lunch and sit and read or talk to my husband who, you know, has an unorthodox schedule as well. Okay. I take it seriously. If I have, if my assistant is in or an intern is in, I make lunch for both of us and just take a minute to like not be in the workspace. Mm -hmm. After that, that's when I take meetings, calls, uh, media things, anything like that, anything that requires me to be sort of out of the, out of the office or out of my home. That's, and I'll do all of that because now the bulk of my work is done and then follow up by the end, towards the end of the day in the evening and then make dinner or go to an event or something like that. Mm -hmm. But I try to, it's always sort of in that vein, that box, no pun intended. What did you have to learn how to do? I know we talked initially Mm -hmm. about you had to learn how to Mm -hmm. pack boxes. (laughs) Literally wrapping boxes. (laughs) What else as an entrepreneur, as someone that, I mean, you have to curate the products that go into your boxes. What have you had to learn how to do in order to successfully manage? I'm trying to I'm trying to minimize this this answer because it's so massive. No, I, it's good. Like it's, you need to tell the truth true. about what it means to be an entrepreneur and having a product based yeah. business. No, you're right. I, I I had to learn. Oh my gosh, QuickBooks. Right. I mean, just how do I budget for this? How do I how do I price things? I had no idea how to price product. Right. I I didn't know how to order something wholesale. I didn't know what a minimum was. What do you mean there's a minimum? You know, I how to even estimate how many products should I have on my website? How much product should I order? How quickly will things sell? How to sell properly? I can market but I'm not a salesperson by nature. You know, I know if you notice, I skipped all of those jobs, right? And just went straight to like the fun, you know, or in my opinion, the fun mm-hmm. stuff, but how to sell, how to close um, when you're selling to somebody. So- Inventory. Inventory is like my worst nightmare still to this day. How to map out, like how to, how to write a business plan, how to map out everything from, you know, what product we wanted to sell, we want to sell, why, when, to whom. I mean, you name it. There's I asked my friends who have their MBA, was it worth it? And they're like, no, just do it. Just do it. They're like, I, nothing I learned in that program could have prepared me for actually doing it. So how did you attack figuring all that out? Did you have like mentors or was it just like researching and then just trial and error? Well, Sparkfest was hugely helpful. So, you know, I looked for things like that, which shout out to Megan. (laughs) We love love Megan, but Sparkfest was really helpful. It helped me with my elevator pitch to really kind of define our mission statement and who we were in those sort of just, you know, uh, pillars of our business. But I ended up, I had a friend who passed my stuff along to her boyfriend. Their company needed a hundred, 150 gift boxes. Oh my gosh. That was, was that, I would have been freaking out. I, well, excuse me. I went to the meeting and I'm like getting ready to sell them on it. And they're like, you don't have to sell us on it. We're already sold on you. Can you just curate this for us? Cool. And they give me the budget and they're like, you know, is a hundred dollars per gift box. Is that enough? And I'm like, yeah, totally. What? Like what? I was thinking I was going to have to sell gift boxes at like $25 each, mm-hmm. which is, this is oh part gosh. of how we ended up being a luxury brand is, um, that was the opening. That was kind of our opening number. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I can do it. I get in the car, do the math. Cause I'm not a mathematician. And even though those numbers were very easy, <laughs> I do the math and I'm like, oh, that's 
that's a lot of money to start off with. And I didn't, I didn't even know, I had no funding. I was like tapping into my savings. I was just like gonna maybe sell a box at a time. I had no idea. And so that was my first client. And so they were essentially my first trial run. How do you order? Oh, that's so scary for them Let me tell you, they didn't know. They were like, they're like, yeah, let's do it. I was like, cool, perfect. You know, I had to rent a to you all to get them their boxes and deliver some of the, I mean, it was a whole ship some, I had no idea how to ship anything. Literally. I'm telling you, I had no idea what typical shipping costs were. How do you, how do you even upload a hundred addresses? So the learning curve was so steep. I remember the, the first big mistake I made was, and it turned out fine, thankfully, but I didn't measure anything. Girl, I am not details, right? Like I did not measure a thing. So I got the boxes a size that I thought would be really good, ordered these bottles, ordered these things. And then it hit me. I was like, this might not be deep. This might not fit. And everything was ordered. And I'm just oh, praying. I'm like, please, 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 please. And fortunately everything fit, but I'm telling you, it was, it was those types of things that you didn't even, I mean, you know, to know, but you don't know to know. Mm-hmm. So there's so much, there's so much of that. But I mean, I took every, every class, I could general assembly was my best friend. Mm-hmm. GA was my best friend. Any talk anybody was doing, I went to it. Um, I mean, I, I think of, uh, Jacqueline, I mean, yeah. Jacqueline was huge. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was such a mentor, just, just down for anything. Like you have questions, you have this, come on, cool. Great. So we did stuff like that. And I just, you're, you're, you're thrown into the fire. So you just figure it out. Yeah. But I trusted myself enough to know I could figure it out. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where to order wooden boxes from. The best thing I ever did was I stopped focusing on what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I just started to do. Yeah, you can do. It's so so easy for me to like read, read, read. Oh my gosh. And I, I like, I love the process of learning. Yes. Not even to like the end goal. It's just like, I like learning. So you like do. going from like, I don't understand what this means at all. And mm-hmm. then like, oh, it's starting to make sense. Right. And now I understand it. Especially now when things are really uncomfortable and I don't know how to do something or even planning for bigger shoots or things that make me really uncomfortable. I've started to just lean into that discomfort and be like, you know what? This doesn't feel great and I don't know how this is going to turn out, but I'm going to go for it anyway. And and usually it turns out. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not going to die more than likely. No, these are gift boxes. It's cool, you know? Unless a hundred wooden gift boxes (laughs) trample. Right. So I guess you could die. die, Right. And people, I learned that I didn't have to have it all figured out, even with my clients. Oftentimes, if I was like, hey, listen, I figure I've never, you know, ordered custom pencils for you. So I'm just making sure that I can find the perfect vendor. Can you give me a little bit more time? They're like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm doing their job. Yeah. So they, they don't care. So you've had to learn a lot mm. in order to be great at what you're doing. So... On the flip side, I want to talk about flat size. And so those are things that you have intentionally chosen not to nurture. Mm. So what would be some things that you think would help you in your job that you had just chosen not to focus on yet? Oh, this is so juicy. And here's the reason why. Because I'm I'm the type of person that wants to fix all of my flaws. Uh-huh. I'm going to read every self-help book. I want to do it all. I want to fix it all. And this year, I took Strength Finders for the first time. Oh, what are you? Oh, I'm a my learner. Gosh. Are you? Of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. I mean, when I read my thing, I was like, oh my gosh, yourself. Like, I'm a learner. I'm a developer. Ugh. I am a... Oh gosh, what is this? Like everything and like it makes sense me yeah. doing this podcast yep. because I like to see people succeed. And uh, did you feel like did you feel like you loved that person when you saw those strengths? I did. I was like, oh, she's 
swimming class. Yes. <laughs> that was my exact reaction. Yeah. And I feel like that is what's so special about that test is all of a sudden you are allowed to like yourself, mm-hmm. right? You're allowed yeah. to like who I you never are. I really thought about that. And these aren't things that really change. They're mm-hmm. really who you are intrinsically. So yeah. I, so I took mine and uh, first and foremost, I'm individualization, which goes back to don't put, ironically, don't put me in a box. Don't put a label on me and seeing every person as like, who are you? Mm-hmm. What's unique about you? And that's how I lead. That's how I do everything. That's even, it's even, even how I curate. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking for these products that are different, that are unique, that are, um, profound in, in whatever, yeah. in whatever arena they're in. So, yeah, so that's me. Um, individualization, uh, context, which I think I've said like six times. So my context is everything. Context, <laughs> deliberative. So I'm really particular about when I say things, how I say things, when I do things, how I do things. Okay. Um, and, and with relationships even, and I think a lot of this comes from being a military brat, the threshold of when people, I let people in fully. Mm. So that's, mm. yeah, it's real. it's very interesting. But I'm often the person in the room too who asks the hard questions. So if we're all in a group and everyone's throwing out these amazing ideas, I typically will poke holes and kind of in challenge. Yeah. Oh, it's so strange when you see mm-hmm. the dots start to connect. And then my last two strategic and uh, relator. And strategic got me really jazzed because before I knew that, I kept affirming that I was I was a strategist. I'm like, I am strategic. Like, I know how to, I can lay out a strategy. Mm-hmm. And I, it was a strength that I was really proud of. And I just started nurturing. With all of that said, none of that is details. <laughs> That's not me. Mm-hmm. And so what I came out of that experience with or even you know taking that test was I'm not going to try to become a detailed person I've since hired an assistant who handles all of my details all of my scheduling I'm no longer trying to run a race that isn't mine Mm. so and the other thing that I found if we're getting really real yeah is that last year I ended up in somewhat of a depression and I think a lot of entrepreneurs go through this. I'd never dealt with depression before, like to the point where I didn't even know I was depressed. Like other people were like, girl, something's wrong with you. I'm like, I'm fine. Go away. I don't want to see anybody. What? (laughs) And so, and, and in that process, I've learned that when you operate outside of your strengths for a really long time, it takes energy, not even a long time. It takes energy from us, right? Like think about Mm -hmm. the things that are really hard for us to do. It takes energy. When you begin to operate in your strengths, you gain energy. So for me, I look at I look at it that way. Yeah. It's like, all right, I want more energy so that I can do more things. So if I need to delegate stuff, like I don't need to do my own graphic design. I don't need to take all of my product photos anymore. Mm-hmm. I can, but I I I might this energy or my skill set, my strengths would be better channeled in a different direction, and that's how my company's gonna grow. So now I have like a couple of rapid fire questions Let's do it. that I'm gonna ask you. Okay. So when you need a boost of confidence, what do you do? Oh my gosh, this is so nerdy. I watch, and I did this whole last, that last year when I was really, really depressed. Um, I watch videos of people running ultra marathons. So, and doing extreme things like climbing Everest. So I literally- Have you ever done anything extreme? I, no, I mean, I'm an, I'm an endurance athlete from my mm-hmm. college days and I like to push myself, but I've never run a hundred miles okay. or even a marathon for that matter. Mm-hmm. And I would literally sit down, and I would just have this these YouTube channels going of people like rock climbing ridiculous peaks in Yosemite in one day or whatever. And so I just I started to surround myself with people who were doing impossible things when things felt completely impossible. It was like, okay, that person made it up Everest in a snowstorm and an avalanche 
I can, I can answer these emails. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or I can, I can come up with a new product line or, you know, the, whatever feels impossible to me actually isn't impossible. So what are five apps or services you can't live without? Okay. So Outlook, Junkie, Evernote, Junkie, definitely Evernote. I can't live without Evernote. I can't either. I'm just not, and I'm not even going to try. So that's cool. My Shopify app actually comes in handy a ton, just given the nature of my business. Mm-hmm. This is juicy. Which ones will I not get rid of? If you could only have five apps on your phone, what would they be? I mean, Spotify, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously Spotify. And I hate to even say this, but like Instagram. Yeah. (laughs) I could get rid of Instagram. But for my business, I kind of need it. Yeah. But definitely Outlook, Evernote, I mean, Dropbox. Those Mm -hmm. are incredible. Yeah. All my my Adobe suite. (laughs) I'm like, now Mm -hmm. I keep going. Yeah. Yeah. How do you unwind? I read. What I type to, of genre? I mix it. So I try to read a book a week and I'll usually read at least like a self-help or a business book. Mm-hmm. And then I try to go to fiction mm-hmm. after that. And yeah. that was, I have a good friend actually who was my wedding photographer and is a Harvard English grad. And her whole thing was, she literally yelled at me last January and she said, Jess, you have to read fiction. This mm-hmm. is this is what creates empathy. This is what allows you to escape. It, it moves the imagination. Mm-hmm. So be sure to read fiction. So now I, I do that. And then, um, yeah, sometimes just like, you know, more spiritual books and things like that. What's the last good fiction book you read? Oh, I read Sula by Toni Morrison. That is my favorite no book way. ever. It is. Oh my gosh. It is. That is my phenomenal. favorite book no ever. No way. I was trying to figure out some kind of way to Whoa. incorporate Sula into Whoa. my business because I think she represents like non-conformity. Whoa. Oh my gosh. You have no idea. That I is giving me head to toe chest. That book. That book is unbelievable. My neighbor yeah. gave it to me. In- UCLA English grad. And she's like, oh, this you've got to read this. And I used to read a ton of Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't read that one. And I was reading it. And I, it's mind-blowing. It, it's so interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's such a an interesting character of somebody who... She changed the people in that town. The whole town. She affected everybody. Everybody. And they thought she was such a pariah. She was like, she has you treating your people better, Better. being more attentive. And as soon as she was gone, it went went back. back. Which was, it's such a power. I know. I think think every woman should read that book. Yes. Everyone should read that book. Because you're right. It's like, all of a sudden, women were taking, you know, great care of their men or whatever it was, or that one, what was it? The one woman with her child, she had been neglecting her child. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden she cleaned up her entire life because she thought something had happened. Mm-hmm. Even it, and people's marriages. Yeah. So yeah. Sula, oh, that I is so it. cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Whoa. So is there, do you have a keystone habit or something that you need to do every day or a few times a week in order to produce your best work? Oh, great question. Um, when I'm in my when I'm in my best rhythms, I'm spending time outside. Mm-hmm. So I'm, yeah, I'm hiking. I'm in solitude somewhere. I just need time with my thoughts. So I, if I, I think what it comes down to is taking time for myself. I'm outgoing, but I'm an introvert, mm-hmm. and so I, I can run out of steam. When I'm really on it, it's mostly it's staying physical, but taking time in that physicality for myself. Mm-hmm. Okay, so pick an odd number between 5 and 135. 121. Okay, 121. All right, so there's this book called Listography, and it's designed to help you create an autobiography based on creating lists. Whoa. 
So number 121 is the memorable parties you've attended. Memorable parties I've attended. Okay, this is so weird. I went to one of the best bar mitzvahs ever. I've never been to one. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I've been to plenty, but these guys, they're just pooch. My husband and I turned to each other and we were like, we need to have a bar mitzvah. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you. So they, the way they did it, you will, you will love this. They did it in like a studio here in Hollywood. So mm-hmm. they rented out a whole like Hollywood studio, which is, you know. Extra. Right. Extra, right. To be for one. But they didn't do it in a temple. So they literally had this like BOGO of uh, the Star of David <laughs> in the background. But they had these guys play and the kid read from Exodus and they were playing Redemption Song by Bob Marley during his ceremony. So they just played Stevie Wonder. They played really like modern day music, beautiful music to accompany him reading from the Torah. So that was cool in itself. But then they went all out. Girl, food trucks, like four food trucks, huge buffet. Uh, They were playing like Nacho Libre. They had this dance party. They they had this amazing DJ and the DJ brought dancers to help you dance during the party. Have you ever seen that? I have not. But this is great. This is a great idea. This is amazing. I'm like, what? So they're like, everybody's in sync. Everybody's dancing. Nacho Libre's up on the screen. You can eat from all the food trucks you want or like the more formal buffet. There were like sumo wrestler suits you could get it. I mean, it was insane. There was there were magicians while we waited that were just doing magic tricks. Someone pulled like a card out of the bottom of my shoe. I almost <laughs> lost it. I was like, what is happening? <laughs> we partied all night. It was so much fun. Um, photo booths, you know, everything. But it was cool because it was a bar mitzvah. It wasn't like Hollywood party, anything mm-hmm. like that. It was just, yeah, so that was pretty awesome. Let's talk about squad care instead of self-care. Oh, okay. Who do you turn to when you need help? I'm in a women's group that is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's probably one of the best investments I've ever made. And it's it's a mixture of like women's listening circles and learning how to ask as a woman for help. Mm-hmm. And so that entire group is who I turn to. That mm-hmm. And that's about 10, probably like 10 to 11 other women. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, probably about seven of them who I'm extremely close with, who I could ask them for anything. So whether it's business help or personal help, anything like that. That's who, that's who I go to. Who are some possibility models in your life? So these are women of color that show you that it's possible to live your dream. You know, my sister and I just had to talk about this because our parents didn't limit us. I never came across this as a black woman. I can't do anything. And, but I've met so many and it it like, it kills me. It like, it actually really kills me because I, I'm like, no, you, you don't, you don't have to, you can, like, I don't really, you know, I don't even know how else to say it. it it's something that gets me really riled up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say the first person to come to mind is Tracy Ellis Ross. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh, Man. I love her so much. Man, I do. I really do. I'm really impressed by who she is. Mm-hmm. She's smart. She's funny. You can tell she works hard. She's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She's very interesting. Yes. I think she's got her foot in many different worlds and mm-hmm. navigates that well. And I, I really love that about her. Yeah. You know what my dad did? This is what my dad told me. He said, listen, as a woman, and specifically as a black woman, as a black person, you are starting behind. Mm-hmm. Everybody else has a head start in this race. You are behind. You need to know that. And now you need to work twice as hard. To get ahead. Yeah. It's not impossible for you to get ahead. Mm-hmm. Just know it's going to take twice as much work. Yeah. The same doors aren't always going to be open. 
And you're going to have to navigate all of this differently than somebody, than frankly, like a white person would have to navigate it. And that's okay. And like, not that that's okay, but he's like, just know that. And so I think from there, that's where it stems from. Okay. Literally I, anything, anything I want to do is Mm -hmm. possible. You know who I'm really impressed by too. And it's interesting that these are both actresses, but, um, Lupita, she is so unbelievably poised. Yeah. And I love, I mean, I love that. But then she's funny too. I mean, she's just, I like, I, I could just, and did this have to be a woman? Or it could be any person of color. I can't remember if it was a woman. Preferably okay. a woman. But if you have someone else that you can, we can break the the, the structure of it. It's okay. Well, and oddly enough, it's entertainment again. But Ryan Coogler, the director. Mm-hmm. And you know what it is? It's because he doesn't play by the rules. So when you hear him talk, he's so bae. Like, he is bay area. <laughs> he's like, and what's up, he's like, so I was like, I'm talking to Stallone. Stallone's talking to me. And I'm like, what? And he is creating unbelievable art. And so I, for me with him, I'm like, dude, there are literally no limitations. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like he's just, he's, he's got these ideas and he's pulling people in. And also he's creating massive opportunities for people of color mm-hmm. and not in roles that are, that have to be people of color. Mm-hmm. He's like, I mean, you know, you look at Creed, Fruitvale Station, all of it. I'm like, he's just, yeah. Can you say... I need to get a costume when I go see Black Panther in February. Okay. I need a costume. I cannot wait for I that. I cannot wait. I cannot wait for that. You know who's even more hyped for that? My husband. <laughs> He's like, this is going to be the greatest movie ever. Wakanda. Oh yeah. my gosh. I know. Um, oh gosh, I can't wait for it to come out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Tamron Hall. Dude. I was so glad that she quit that job. Oh. That she was just like, oh, I'm going to take this demotion. No. Nope. Tamron. Bye. Tamron. Yes. Tamron Hall. Yeah. yeah, she's one for me. So if people want to find you online, where should they go? Oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so for my business, it's Hote, H-A-U-T-E, Hope, H-O-P-E, Gives. So that's Instagram or Twitter, Facebook, etc. And then my website is www.hote-hope.com. <laughs> do they have to do this? They have to do this. <laughs> Otherwise, it won't work. Just kidding. And then personally, it's Jess Puccinelli, which you should look in this show notes because... That is a mouthful um, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all that good stuff. Awesome. And I'll put links to all of that in the show notes for you. So we have one final question. So the name of this podcast is How She Did It. If you could go back in time and give your younger self some career advice, what would you tell yourself? Start the side businesses you wanted to start. So all of those ideas you had, go for them. You know, whether it was wanting to start this digital magazine called Dexterity with my roommate, which my old roommate, which we still talk about. And we're like, Dexterity would be the best magazine ever. Um, do it. You know, the small, uh, not catering, but events company you wanted to start, do it. Just get those, like, take the steps and get comfortable. Get comfortable being uncomfortable and really get comfortable in entrepreneurship because you're going to need it. Okay, standouts, isn't just the coolest? After re-listening to our chat, I was tempted to title this episode Jess and Her Squad in recognition of all the people who supported and encouraged her throughout her career. Here are a few things I learned or that stood out to me during our conversation. I learned Jess went to UT Knoxville on a rowing scholarship. 
I didn't discover this until later in our conversation and I wished I would have covered this more. Mainly how she got into rowing because we chatted about her high school years. She mentioned playing basketball and running track but made no mention of rowing. So I have a lot of questions about this. I also learned there is a news museum in D.C. appropriately named Newseum. I also learned that Jess's signature themes, according to the Gallup's Strength Finders assessment, are individualization, context, deliberative, strategic, and relator. My signature themes are learner, intellection, developer, discipline, and self-assurance. When we were talking about our strengths, I love when Jess said, when you operate outside of your strengths, you lose energy. The background music for this episode is from Ryan Little. All things discussed in this episode, including a link to the HLN profile of Jess and Hot Hope that was introed by Robin Mead, can be found on the show notes page at nts.today forward slash six. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate the podcast on iTunes. Thank you for listening to this episode. Until next time.